0: Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Adam Hawkins. In each episode, I present a small batch of a theory and practices behind building a high-velocity software organization. Topics include DevOps, Lean, software architecture, continuous delivery, and conversations with industry leaders. Now, let's begin today's episode. Hello and welcome back to the last episode in the High Velocity Ed series. I hope you enjoyed the past nine episodes in the lead up to this episode featuring my conversation with Dr. Spear. I don't think you or I expected it to go on for that long, so thank you for sticking with me. There are a few things I should mention before getting into the conversation. First, I know that I've said it many times throughout these episodes, but I'll say it again anyway. This book changed everything for me. It inspired me to take writing and this podcast more seriously. Let me tell you a story about how that happened. I think Dr. Spear told this story in a book or on another podcast. I can't really remember at this point, but whatever, the story stuck with me. It goes something like this. Steve Spear went to a Toyota assembly factory in Japan on a research project. He approached someone on the assembly line and asked them how they did their job. You may think they replied and said something like, well, step one, I do this, step two, I did this, step three, etc. Oh no, this is Toyota. The guy pulled out a binder of all the past experiments and knowledge that had informed them how they discovered how to achieve the current outcome, a.k.a. that's the daily work, or how he does his job. I realized that I needed to be doing something like that. I needed to capture the entirety of my knowledge on certain topics so that I could revisit it myself and, of course, share it with others. Plus, as Admiral Rickover says, problems with arguments are painfully clear when put into writing. So, practice. That led me on an unexpected side quest to rework my website to be something closer to a wiki. I've added most of the work from the past five years and all of the writing I've done for this podcast to it. You'll find theory, guides, articles, and of course, book analysis. I've also included the transcripts for all nine episodes in the High Velocity Ed series since I did write them ahead of time. Writing the scripts helps me concentrate the knowledge into the best and smallest batch possible. Anyway, check out my website at hawkins.io or find it on the podcast website at smallbatches.fm. Lastly, there's one more resource to aid you in your high-velocity journey. I've put together a free guide to Mike Rother's The Toyota Kata. His book directly relates to the second capability in the high-velocity edge. That's problem-solving. Toyota applies two kata, or practices, in this area. The first is the improvement kata, and the second is the coaching kata. These are wonderful exercises to help people solve problems and to teach others the problem-solving process. Get it for free at toyotakatapocketguide.com. All right, now time to introduce the man, the myth, the bowtie master, the legend, Dr. Steven Spear. He has a pretty long bio, so I'll read off a short version of it from the book jacket. Stephen Spear is a five-time winner of the Shingle Prize and recipient of the McKinsey Award. He's a senior lecturer at MIT and former assistant professor at Harvard. He's a senior fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. He's the author of numerous articles appearing in academic and trade publications, including the Harvard Business Review and the New York Times. He also holds degrees from Harvard, MIT, and Princeton. And he's worked at the University of Tokyo and the U.S. Congress Office of Technology Assessment. So that's the official bio. But let me give you a little bit of color on that, too. I think that he is a fun and passionate guy. You could tell when he speaks that he's really into this stuff. He's done the research. He's done the work. He's been on the floor. I think this is someone that we should really listen to. So now that we've waited long enough, I give you my conversation with Dr. Stephen Spear. Steve, welcome to Small Batches. How are you today?
1: Hey, doing great, Adam. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, my pleasure. I'm so excited to talk to you. I just finished uh, reading the high-velocity edge in preparation for this uh, interview, and it's almost, it uh, took me too long to read it because given if you've read the DevOps Handbook that's cited and referenced so many times in sort of you know connected literature, it's just about time that I read it and I'm, Overjoyed that I did and now I'm gonna to talk to you about it. And I like to start the conversation by trying to boil down the book to, you know, like one sentence and not to trivialize it because there's so much more to it than just that. But I think at the heart of the high velocity edge is the simple idea that use the scientific method to measure and experiment to improve your practices and continue to do that. And then you expound upon that, you know, quite well throughout the book. But is that a fair starting point for the high velocity edge?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So you think about it, I started, uh, this line of work in the mid 1990s, trying to explain, um, how Toyota had, uh, established and sustained and actually still sustains a, a crushing competitive advantage over its, uh, rivals in an industry, which is just, um, brutal in terms of, it should be a level playing field where no one can, um, gain and sustain a, a meaningful advantage. And, uh, Anyway, I started there, factory floors and that kind of thing, and my entire career has converged down to one point, encouraging the use of the scientific method by everyone, about everything, all the time. And kind of my assertion is, if everyone did that, and we can talk about why that's so important, but if everyone did that, we'd all be happier, Hmm. uh, and the world would be a much better place. Just to sort of unpack why um, I'm such an advocate for the scientific method, And, and like you said, You know The book runs quite lengthy because it's got a lot of uh, cases and anecdotes and narratives in it. But what does it boil down to? You just do the scientific method. If you think about what the scientific method is, it um, asks that we make a declaration of what we believe to be true. And then it asks us to um, expose those declarations to refutation to find out where we're wrong. And when we find out where we're wrong, what the scientific method then says, so your first guess was wrong. But now that you've had more experience and more data, you have an opportunity to update your guess, you know, create a hypothesis one, two, three, or prime, double prime, et cetera. And um, you have an opportunity now to take a better guess and get smarter and smarter. Now, just thinking this through, why this is so critically important is that um, the reason we do our work and whether we are uh, people who are developing IT systems or software specifically, or more generally, people developing drugs, The reason most people go to work every day is to solve problems. Look at this whole COVID thing right now. Yeah, there are things that we should be doing, we know we should be doing, like wearing masks. But more generally, the reason we're still suffering through this thing is um, of problems. We don't understand the virus. We don't understand really how it uh, infects. We don't really understand how it causes complications, biological complications in patients. We don't have, um, or we, we didn't have, maybe we will have a vaccine, right? It's all problems, all things we don't understand. And and what is the scientific method Um, unbelievably good at doing? It's taking you from a position where um, you don't know, you're confused, you lack understanding. And through this uh, iterative experience of fast feedback where you make a declaration and find out what's wrong with the declaration and modify the declaration and then get feedback on that and that and that, that you actually come to understanding. When you have understanding, you have solution. So anyway... That's right. What what we wrote about in the book was um, basically people who had arrived at the realization that the scientific method applied to everything all the time to everyone ideally would lead to much much better outcomes than the lack of that rigor. And uh, you know the book discusses uh, you know proof cases, be it uh, the design and production of automobiles, the invention of nuclear propulsion for submarines, et cetera.
0: Yeah, there's so many different examples and almost like case studies across different industries that if you're reading this book, if you're in software or in any industry, you can see how this way of thinking applies because it's so clearly applied in many different contexts. That gives a nice you know, background to say, yeah, these are not specific to a certain industry or a certain you know, role or responsibility, but these are, you know, it's really a philosophy for how you go about your daily work. And then we get back to the idea of improvement of the daily work as a, you know, as how you actually do your work. That is your objective. And the mm-hmm. other point about you kind of danced around it when you mentioned the scientific method is something that you mentioned at the end of the book, which is the scientific method sets you up in a discovery mindset as opposed to a knowing mindset. The point yep. is like the solutions aren't known, they're discovered. So if you, if you can say from the outset that I don't know the solution to this problem or I don't know the best way to do this, then you will experiment and then discover something you find to be provably true as opposed to something that you just assume is true. Mm-hmm. And that to me was just an amazing point that if you can focus on discovering the solutions, you'll get to a better place than if you assumed that they assumed what they were. Right. Yeah,
1: hey, look, Adam, that, that's 100%. So, a couple of things here. When I first started this work and started talking about this work, people pegged me as the Toyota guy. And, mm. You know, I, I'd give my talk about Toyota, it would be about Toyota. And then you get the hand wave, ah, you know, well, that's interesting if you even got that cursory cris- cris- hand wave, but we don't make cars. Now, you start thinking about this really, wh- why does this seem to apply? And in the book, you know, I documented application across a fairly diverse fields, and we've seen in practice, efficacy in many other fields is because you know we typically define organizations by the um the product or service they deliver you know the mm-hmm. plane the train the automobile the, the medication etc and and sometimes we define the 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 organization by the processes it uses to construct or make or um, deliver the plane train the automobile the medication the medical care the hospitality service et cetera. but that's not the problem because once you know let's say with a, a medication, once you know what disease you're treating, once you know um, how that illness uh, occurs, once you know um, what medication will offset the causality for it, you've solved all the problems. And, and similarly with planes, trains, and automobiles, once you actually have the thing and you know what it is, what it should be, how to provide it, who needs it, et cetera, the problems are gone. The hard part is solving the problems. And, and that's the commonality across planes, trains, automobiles, and medications, right? Which is, we're trying to come to, um, through a collaborative effort, we're trying to come to an understanding of what is the problem we're even trying to solve. And we're trying to come to a collaborative effort as to what's the solution might be for that particular problem. And also through collaborative cognitive effort, we're trying to figure out how to actually how to construct a solution that'll deal with that problem. And so when, when you start moving away from the object that an organization um, produces, and you move one level up to the processes and you move the level up to that, what do you have? People working collaboratively. And um, once you've got that issue, which is we've got a very big problem to which we each can contribute only a small, an important, maybe even a necessary, but certainly an insufficient to which we can each contribute in a small part of the much larger whole of the solution, then that's a common problem, common managerial problem. Which is, what do you do in order to um, achieve a much higher yield on people's innate capacity, both individually and collectively? How do you achieve a much higher yield on people's innate capacity to be creative? Mm. And and that's what we're talking about. And once once we realize that's what we're talking about, tapping into people's innate ability to be creative, then it's not about planes. It's not about trains, automobiles, medications, or medical care. It's about people and, and the organization of them so that their efforts come to such, to some better harmonious outcome.
0: Yeah, that's true. Now, we sort of segue into the first part of the fourth thing to talk about in the book, which is problem solving. And I want to get your comments on the structure and dynamics of organizations and how that relates to solving these kind of problems. Yeah. So can you describe for the listener the concept of, structure and dynamics and how that relates to solving the problem you're describing?
1: Yeah, so um, that's great. So it, look, it, it all comes off this premise that the reason we get together inside an organization is because there are problems that we can't solve individually. Look, if you could solve it individually, why would you even go into org You, just, you know, solve a problem and move on to the next thing? The reason we get together is to solve problems, right? So if the reason we get together and solve problems, then uh, what we want to make sure is that... Um, when it comes time to solve a problem, we have the right people talking to the right other people in the right way about the right thing to uh, most effectively solve the problem. And if we have the wrong people talking to the wrong other people about the wrong thing in the wrong way, then we'll be uh, slower and less effective to solving the problem. Now, this is an interesting thing, is that if you look at successful organizations and whatever form they have now, and no matter how much they're struggling to accomplish on their whatever their social mission is right now, What's interesting and what has to be actually is that the form they now have, whether it's, you know, even if it's an underperforming organization right now, at some point they had the right structure. Mm. At some point they had the right structure. And and here's why is because um, early on there were problems in society, be it the commercial problems in the marketplace or other social problems. There were were problems in society for which there were no solutions. And uh, the organization got started um, because what it wanted to do, it's, uh, its founders, its originators wanted to do is they wanted to be the source of solution. And so um, they spent time trying to come to shared understanding of the problem collaboratively. They, uh, they spent some time trying to come to some shared understanding of the solution, collaborative problem solving again, and then they arrived at a solution. And, and the, when they did, the reason they did is that um, they figured out in order to get to a solution that was meaningful, and meaningful is both magnitude and speed, right? In order to come to a solution that was meaningful, they had to have the right people talking to the right people about the right things at the right time. And whether they organized within functions or cross-functional teams or ma- whatever it is, mm-hmm. that was the right solution at the time, right organizational solution at the time to generate these technical solutions. And now what you see with organizations, though, is that um, their organizational structures, once established. You know, it's interesting, right? They, they get established in this very dynamic era of conversion experience of, oh, no, no, hey, Adam, you shouldn't be talking to Steve right now. You should talk to him later. Talk to someone else like Gene right now, right? So it, it emerges. You get this emergence structure, and then it calcifies. Mm. And that, that, that becomes a problem. This is why we see organizations fail, is because um, the problem space in which they're operating, it hasn't calcified. There might be new problems, new products, new technology, new markets, new competitors, new suppliers right? everything's new, 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 right? But they've started establishing routines, they've started establishing bureaucracy, they've started establishing um, expectations, et cetera. And in doing so, the form which once fit no longer does. It's like me trying to you know squeeze into my uh, wedding tuxedo. <laughs> it once looked lovely on me, but you know, I changed. It didn't. Right. And, uh, you know, ideally, you know, that's why spandex is such a wonderful thing. Right. You know, a dynamic change of your clothing, your physique. But anyway, what we see is um, most organizations don't have the capacity to um, continue to morph their um, structure. There are examples and, uh, you know, we can go into them, but um, there are a few examples or counterexamples, but by and large, most don't. But anyway, that's where the structure piece comes in, which is, um, again, you know, the reason we show up is to collectively, collaboratively solve problems. And we have to make sure we've got the right neural system in place to uh, do that effectively.
0: So to try to restate the relationship between structure and dynamics for the listener, the way that, one way I I think you can think of it, and please correct me if this is a, a wrong description, you can think of structure as the neurons and then dynamics is all the different ways that the neurons communicate. They can change, yep. they can reorder, but there's going to be some fixed structure and things are going to flow depending on the need at hand. And yeah. over time you'd like to change your structure to you know continually adapt to whatever the problem set is and you know keep the dynamics in place such that this things are able to flow and work right as expected. Yeah. But the problem is that as you say sometimes a structure can calcify and then they organizations miss this inflection point where the world has changed underneath them but they haven't maybe they're not aware of that and that's a whole other conversation of you know what happens but the next thing i'd like to ask you about is how did you see the relationship between structure and dynamics and a focus on like problem solving in your experience at toyota can you give us a, maybe one or yeah. two short examples of maybe these key moments for you when you saw this uh, in action?
1: Yeah, so I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, you know, very often we think that the, uh, the key to guess, getting something done that we currently can't get done is we need more muscle. And uh, another approach is that we don't need more muscle, we need a better nervous system. And um, uh, I'll set up this example, which um, when I did my uh, studies at Toyota, this is, you know, 30 years ago, they ask that before I go on to their into their manufacturing facilities, first, what I do is I spend some time in a competitor's facility to get a sense so I could have the comparison. you know And um in that environment, I was one of fifty on a team, you know before our first level supervisor. And on any given day, if there was a question of productivity and output, we added muscle or took it away, right? Which is uh, oh, we're running behind, let's add more people, We're running behind, let's add another ship, right? that's that's the I think that's the common way to think about these things, which is if we want more, add more resources. And here was the fascinating thing. Now remember that that ratio of 50 to 1. Mm-hmm. In the Toyota environment, in the Toyota environment, now remember why were we interested in Toyota? Because at that point Toyota had demonstrated that if you do a headcount, their productivity was double anybody else. So if you wanted to catch up with Toyota, you would have to build another factory. You would have to add another ship and they, and they were just like, no, we're fine, you know. Mm-hmm. Or like nine-to-five, you know, like Dolly Parton would say. So anyway, in that environment, they had – and remember where I was coming from, it was 50-to-one. They had, let's say, three, four, or five, let's say five for the sake of argument, five team members, and then you had a team lead. what's the job of the team lead? The team lead is there um, not to boss around, not to instruct, not to uh, delegate. The job of the team lead is to be the uh, the intellectual – Slack resource so that if someone has a problem, someone could pull that famous and on cord and someone, you know, Adam could run over and say, hey, Steve, what seems to be the problem? How can I help? And uh, it wasn't only while the line was running, it was um, during breaks where then we could get together with our other teammates and say, hey, what went wrong and what can we do to make things better? All right? Now that, that's, that's five to one. Now, uh, in that environment, they also had for each team, they had, let's say three teams to a group. All right, now now we've got 15 people actually turning wrenches. So 15 muscle. But now but well, we've got three at that first level, three team leads. So we've got three team and a group lead. So now our ratio is like um, four to fifteen in terms of neurological system to muscle. And what's the job of the group lead? Well, the job of the group lead is that if Steve has a problem and you know needs help, Adam comes over and says, What's the problem? How can I help? And most of the time that's fantastic. I'm really appreciative of what you've done for me, but occasionally you can't. Mm-hmm. And then on those occasional times, um, you have a problem. So Gene Kim comes over and says, hey, Adam, what's the problem? How, how can I help? So now think about our ratios, right? Most everyone else, is if they want to up their output, they add more team members. And what did Toyota do? Say, no, no, no. It's not the team members. It's the team leads because we have to um, pick up the slack when we have a problem, sort of dampen the variance. But we also have to have the ability to solve problems. So now we're at, you know, 15 team members. That's three teams. So we got three team leaders and group lead. So we got that four. to one. Then we get to an area, right? Because occasionally, you know, um, Jim Kim comes running over in his group leader uh, role. He can't actually be helpful. But fortunately, Ann Perry, the, uh, the area manager, mm-hmm. she comes over, right? Then you start thinking about these ratios. So we've got, you know, three teams to a group, three groups to an area. So that gives us uh, 45 direct labor. We've got nine team leads. We've got three group leads, and we've got an. So we got a ratio of 14 or 15 to the 45. And, and it's crazy because it's when you factor those people in that you get to these two-to-one productivity ratios. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, what the hell is going on? Because those people, quote-unquote, you know, the, 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 the conventional look at that is like, what the hell is going on? Those people don't do anything all day. All they do is, quote-unquote, manage. It's like, whoa, hold on. It's not that they're there managing in terms of, you know, shuffling paper and checking lists and doing audits and that kind of thing. They're there to um, respond to problems that the person doing the direct work can't handle on his own or her own. What it is, it's it's the investment in the neural system. Anyway, let me just, I'll stop at this point. You know, um, obviously, you know, human beings have been the most invasive species on the planet. More than cockroaches. I'm joking. I'm not making no comparison between us and cockroaches. Don't want to offend people or cockroaches. But what I'm saying, you know, you think about it. Have we managed to pull this off? You know, we we stand up, so we're kind of slow. We can't run like a cheetah. You know, our arms are weak. We can't climb like a chimpanzee. Our teeth are dull. You know, it limits some. Kind of limits what we can eat. Our digestive systems are not nearly. Today I was watching some squirrels outside on my roof, Uh and they're they're drinking water. You know water off the, uh, off a rubber roof. And they're mm-hmm. fine with that. If you or I drank water off a rubber roof, we'd get pretty sick. Right? So we got these very, so if, if you think about the muscle of the human being, it are kind of weak creatures. So how is it that we've um, been the, the dominant invasive species through evolution? It's because our brains, we got gigantic brains relative to our bodies. And uh, anyway, just, you know, pulling that, um, pulling that back to what we're talking about organizations is what Toyota figured out is that if you really want to compete, adding more and more muscle is not the way adding more and more brain is. And to a point you were making earlier, you know, what, what they're trying to set up is a structure where um, people can have the right conversations, the right parts of the neural system are connected with the other right parts with signals you know, flashing back mm-hmm. and forth. So you get attention and concentration on the right problems at the right time. Now, there's a whole lot of other expression of it, but... But this whole notion of adding this quote, what anyone else in that industry would view as overhead and Toyota views as absolutely necessary. And in mm-hmm. fact, just one sort of product plug in, in my um, my book, I've got um a couple of chapters uh, developed to um – I've got a chapter developed to knowledge sharing and another one developed to leadership. And w- what is common to both of those is Toyota's huge, huge, like paranoid level – anxiety-laden investment in developing group leaders. Mm. And you say, "What? Well, what is a group leader? Well, a group leader is the person who um, throughout the operations is the person who sets the norms, the behavior, the standards, the expectations that the organization be a thinking organization that happens to make a physical product as opposed to an organization that makes a physical product and occasionally has to pause think. So Anyway, anyway back well, to
0: you. Well, thank you for bringing the group leaders up, Steve. I'm going to Put a flag in that one. I'd like to come back to that if we have time. But uh, like right now, I think we've covered at least two of, of the capabilities you mentioned in the book out of four. So we talked about the first one, which was problem design, we talked about problem solving, the mention of the end on cord and swarming, and just a little sidebar there. It's like When you were describing the concept of these people coming in and solving the problems, my mind went to the goal and the theory of constraints and that the people's if they're blocked by problems that they can't solve, that creates a bottleneck in the process. Right, so right. these group leaders, are the people, the team leads coming in and solving the problems, they're really solving, quote, the problems, but they're addressing the bottleneck in the system, which is the inability to move through these right. unknown problems. So in yep. a sense, that's actually, it's not even Slack. It's the most important resources you have, which is to throw it at the bottlenecks. If you As you know, if you're yep. not unblocking the bottleneck, you're not actually improving the process, right? So that, that's the key as you mentioned, the key realization. Mm -hmm. But I want to take it now to something you have in the book here under Capability 2, which is the problem-solving framework as it relates to something that I talk about a lot on the podcast, which is the idea that you can build a deployment pipeline that proves the absence of known regressions. Therefore, you can say that all these changes I make are free of known regressions. That way you can deploy fearlessly to production, you can do your work quickly, and this speaks to you have some definition of the ideal, the true north beacon to which improvement effects were orientated. So the first characteristic here is defect-free. Second Mm -hmm. is on-demand, one piece at a time, immediate and without waste, safe and secure. All these things seem like what we want from our software delivery pipeline. So my question to you, Steve, is what are the theory and practices that we can use to achieve a defect-free delivery pipeline?
1: All right, so great question. And I love you, you. You're bringing up this notion of the ideal. So there's a common thread here, which is the idea you know, between this idea of the ideal and what we started off with talking about the scientific method. And um, the common thread or the common theme is the idea of feedback. Mm-hmm. And, and what, is, what is feedback? What is useful feedback? Useful feedback is not affirmation, validation. I mean, yeah, for our you know, self-esteem, it's important, I suppose. Because that's a constantly eroding <laughs> asset. Yeah. But but really, from a learning perspective, the useful feedback is the contradiction, and you know that's the essence of the scientific method. And you know, look, Thomas Edison is um, kind of the poster child of the scientific method. You know, the ten thousand times he tried to get a light bulb to before the first one lit, and then whether he said it or not, it's a fine saying. He said, he said, I I didn't fail ten thousand times to. Uh, Get a light bulb to light. I, I learned ten thousand times why it wouldn't, you know. And, and so it's you know ten thousand things not to put into a light bulb, right? Mm. So um, so you know it, it's just a whole idea of feedback. Now, what we found in the Toyota environment is very interesting. You ask people in most places how do you do your work, and most people are you know sort of proud of their work, they're hospitable, whatever else, they'll humor you at the very least. They say, hey, Adam here, come on over. I'll, I'll, I'll let you see how I do my work. I'm gonna do A B C D E one two three four five we found in the Toyota environment, this whole notion of um, tension between reality and aspirations—a tension mm. and commitment to the scientific method—it was cultivated. So you'd go over to people. Or I went over to people, and, and people are not sophisticated by the degrees, the education, the pedigree, the letters before or after name—just you know, ordinary working and steps. And you say, "Hey, you know, uh, can I see how you do your work?" And i say, "Oh yeah, sure, sure." So you know. The work I have here is um, this welding operation. Now, ideally, when I did this weld, it'd be a defect-free weld. Mm-hmm. And um, I would do that weld. Um, i do that weld defect-free when uh, someone asked me to, based on customer need, not based on my own internally driven schedule. And if someone wanted me to do that weld when they asked for it, uh, I'd do the weld immediately. Because if they know they need it, why would they have to wait? And I'd only do one weld, right? Because why would I do the extra weld if they only asked me for one? So it gets to the one-by-one one thing. And uh, in doing that weld, you know, I want to make sure that it's uh, easy and efficient. I'm not wasting time and resources, et cetera. I want to make sure I do the weld in a safe fashion that I don't hurt myself or burn down the building. And um, you know, some of these other things that, the security comes in like sort of information security, but I, I do the weld in such a way that it's not spill and trade secrets. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that'd be the ideal. And then they say, Yeah, but here's the problem. When I go to do that weld, it's a complicated weld, it's a difficult weld, and there's a chance I'm going to create a defect. So, uh, what I've done is I've created this corrective action as countermeasure, you know, in the medical parlance, this treatment. Mm-hmm. And because I've got this corrective action, it makes it easier to make a defective, uh, I'm sorry. It makes it easier to make a defect free weld. And it makes it actually it makes it harder to make a defective weld. And because of this corrective measure, I'm, I'm, I'm closer to the uh, the ideal of defect free on demand, one by one, safe, secure, et cetera. Um, I'm closer to that ideal than I would be otherwise. Now you start thinking about that conversation. It, it, it's insane, right? Because yes, most people have to see their work and they show you the weld. It's the physicality. You know, here's my welding torch, here's the weld, here's the welding material. Yes, someone in that environment, how they do their well, they give this whole unpacking of the uh, the scientific method they use to uh, figure out how to do the well closer to the ideal rather than further than the ideal. And uh, we we found that when we went to places that really kind of bought into this as a way to manage, you know, way way to manage people to get really tap into their creative potential. Every time you asked a person a question about what they did, you thought you're asking a question about the physicality of the environment. It's like, oh, the physicality is just the way to express the thinking, you know, that, that it was all about, well, there's this ideal. I've got this attention, tension between where I am and where the ideal is. And I've run through these, uh, these various experiments. And here's the experiment right now. You know, mm-hmm. and, and w- one last thought on this is uh, let's ask someone to see the standard work by which they did something. I think it was like putting a seat in a car. And, they, and the guy pulled out a, a, a three ring loose leaf binder. I said. How can I possibly be? I said, it's hundred some odd pages in that loose leaf binder. I could take you a hundred pages to put a scene in a car. He said, "Oh no, 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 just the top page. <laughs> just the top page. Twelve steps, fifty-five seconds." I said, "Well, what's the other hundred pages?" He said, "Oh yeah, well, um, you know, yesterday that was the previous page. I was doing this work. I had a problem, you know, and then he walked through the whole ideal and the problem, the corrective action, and uh, so that's why we have this is today's standard work, today's experiment." So, what are the other pages in the book? So they started flipping through. He said, "Well, you know, let's say we're having this conversation. And it's on a Wednesday, right? So page two in the book was Tuesdays. Page one in the book was—I'm uh, sorry—the page before that was uh, Mondays. Page before that was last Thursdays because it lasted for two whole days. The standard mm. work. They started flipping back. And what was the first page? The very bottom page in the book was that the first—that was the first standard work that they had conceived. So, well, how long did you lose that? Use that standard work?" So now, ah, you know, maybe half a minute because we didn't even make it through a cycle before we figured out. There was so much stuff we just didn't understand. Mm-hmm. So we had, you know, standard work, standard work, standard work, standard work, all within the first 10 minutes of trying to do this uh, this, this task. So um, anyway, the idea is this beautiful source of tension. The gap as the provocation for um, making a change and the change being in this form of the scientific method. I have a problem. I have a hypothesis about its source. I have a hypothesis about its resolution. And the test of the hypothesis is actually using the new standard work.
0: Mm. Yeah. So in theory, if you, say, approach, say, a bug or aggression or some known failure in production, if you could see that as a problem and figure out some experiment that you can do to you know, reproduce it, and then another way to prove its absence, bake that into your process of how you actually do your standard work, then that becomes your natural way of thinking. And then over time, applied everywhere and continuously, you will continually remove known defects from your standard work. 100%. Now, hey,
1: I'm so glad you brought up bugs because I want to tell you what's a favorite recent story. Oh yeah. So, um, I was working with a company which does you know these very very uh, gigantic uh, programs and processes to get product to market. You know the the steps start to finish can be thousands with possibly hundreds of points of contact. Anyway, you know I was given a talk about you know learning organization scientific method. He explained a little bit of my background. You know inspired by Toyota and how they converted what people think is uh, physical work into intellectual work, which just happens to have a physical component, like a laboratory has beakers and test tubes, I guess, and pipettes. Anyway, I'm giving this story, and uh, we're looking around for a volunteer to create a pilot
0: mm-hmm. in this
1: organization. This is one guy, and he does a firmware debug named Matt. And Matt's like, well, I don't know, you know, I can't, you know, this is for cars. I'm not sure how this will work for me, because, you know, after all, debug is kind of an art, but I'll give it a try. hmm and what Matt did was, you know, um, he got he and his uh, team of uh, software engineers. They came up with a commitment that if um, they had a problem, they would uh, not sort of just sort of hack away at it. They said, "Wait a second, why do we have this problem? Because we created it. Because the best known approach we had used up to this point was capable of creating the bug. Wasn't mm-hmm. capable of creating defect free. Capable of creating the bug. So if we want to um, get rid of the bug, we have to try another approach. And the other approach, the new approach, you know, the approach." prime or whatnot, that's a hypothesis. And so what we're gonna do is rather than just do the work, you know, with an implicit hypothesis, we're gonna make um, explicit, we're gonna before we do this, we're gonna state our belief about the new approach and why it will get rid of the bug. Now of course it didn't work on the first or the second or third try every time, you know, sometimes it took the 10th try. But anyway, Matt made this commitment that he was going to use the scientific method every time they tried to the debug. And wouldn't you know, wouldn't you know, and after, I don't know, like two months of um, treating this work each and every time as an experiment and each and every time as an experiment by everyone on his team, their debug productivity, it went up 18-fold. 18-fold. It was crazy, right? <laughs> it was crazy. And you start thinking about what we talked about before. It wasn't a matter of adding more muscle. It's not like they got more debug uh, software engineers. And they didn't get smarter. They started using their brains more, or not more. It wasn't like they were brain dead. They started using them more effectively. They started using the scientific method. Now, now the thing about um, Matt, which I love, is when we started this thing, Matt said, Well, I don't know. You know, it works for cars, but what we do is different, but I'll give it a try. And then when they got to 18X, it's like, Damn, Matt, that's pretty good. You want to try it somewhere else? He's, well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it'll work for debug and firmware, but I'll get, and, and, and that's the beauty of Matt, which is, and, and I think, I think it, it finally reached the point where he was being a little facetious and just kept up, but he always said, you know, I just don't know if it'll work, but I'm going to give it a try. I'll give it a try with rigor. And if it works, I'll be delighted and I'll tell other people. Anyway, um, it was a beautiful thing because, uh, Matt's, you know, he said, you yeah, know, what the hell I'll give it a try. It may not work, but you know, no harm there. He got on his team this 18x increase in productivity. He started uh, telling other people and showing other people. And wouldn't you know, this thing spread virally through this organization. And it spread virally, not only at the sort of horizontally, but also spread vertically as people started to realize, wait a second, if I'm managing the collaborative effort of many, what I really need to do is get more and more people to behave like Matt and his teammates. Mm -hmm. And more and more people can behave like Matt and his teammates. Well, so, anyway, this uh, this organization went from, um, you know, being okay in their marketplace to, you know, it was about a two-year effort. It's a big organization, thousands of people. But after about two years, they were ranked number one by their customers. And, and again, it was you know, what you raised earlier. There was no more muscle mass, right? They didn't hire more people. They just said, wait a second, let's put our brains to more use so that our hands are more effective.
0: Mm. Yeah. So – We're almost out of time here. I'd like to get some quick comments on you as we were from you on this point. That you it's a nice segue from Matt back to the group leaders, which is something I don't think was called out specifically, but I think we're kind of dancing around the edge of it in the conversation, which is the improvement kata and the coaching kata. So we're talking about the group leaders and their role is to sort of get people to think in this way, which is the coaching kata, and then the improvement kata down. Say, "At Matt, like I have this problem. What's my target condition? I want to get to, and how can I do that? Right? And how is that the role of these two katas?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's 100 percent right. So, um, I'll tell you what, Matt. When when we're done, uh, Adam, I'm sorry, <laughs> something flashed across my screen and my attention span, Adam. So, um, what I'll do is when we're done talking, I'll uh, forward you an excerpt out of my book, chapter nine, which is leadership chapter, mm-hmm. and um. What you just said is completely, totally right on. Which is, there, there are these handful of organizations who had said, we're going to compete by the efficacy and efficiency with which we can see and solve problems. That's how we're going to compete. And, and if we're competing in autos or airplanes or submarines or the production of medication or um, you know, complex, sophisticated electronic equipment, we're going to compete at the speed at which we can learn and discover and explore. And um, if we do that, then we're going to be uh, way ahead of everybody on um, things like uh, productivity, efficiency, fit-to-market, et cetera. All right, so how do you do that? Well, what you have to do is inculcate in people this approach, you know, the, the approach that Matt took on and the, the approach that I saw you know, so beautifully on the shop floor of Toyota's better suppliers, you know, treating everything as an experiment. And so then you say, well, if you want your associates to behave that way, how are they going to know to behave that way? Well, they're going to look one level up mm. and, and left and right and say, "Well, how are everyone else behaving?" And if everyone else is behaving that way, they might behave that way. And if no one else is behaving that way, they they may do it as you know, kind of rogue behavior. But they they won't be able to sustain it because the, the social reinforcement is not there. Now, if you want your team leads to behave that way, who's going to um, make sure that happens? So it has got to be your group leads? And this is why the group leads become so important. You know, you got to teach group leads. So then it gets, well, how do how do the group leads know that this is our way? Our way is to, whether it's the object right in front of me or the system of work in which I'm embedded, our way is to uh, treat everything as an experiment from which every action is generating feedback. Well, then it starts going, well, if it, if it's the group lead, then it's got the area manager. If the area manager has got to be the system general manager, and then the general manager. Then it goes all the way up to the top of the organization. So whether the organization is tens of thousands or just tens, Simply doesn't matter. Is that um, if you're responsible for other people, you have this huge, huge opportunity to show them the right way. And the Mm. right way is the right way is to say, "Hey, we're wrong about a lot of stuff, but we can get better, right? You know, we can get righter about it if we're starting off wrong." And um, you know, I'll tell you, I I find this um, very inspirational. This whole idea. When I first got started with this work, it was. U.S. manufacturer was facing this existential threat from um, Japanese intruders. And, you know, the conversations were always in terms of uh, parts and dollars, right? You know, how many cars, how many dollars, how many tons of steel, how many dollars or how many yen, whatever else it was. And and that's important, right? Because, you know, the ability to make a, a car for fewer dollars, a ton of steel for fewer dollars, gets into people's ability to uh, earn a meaningful wage, support their families, you know, support their communities, et cetera. And so in, in that, it's inspirational. But I think there's another piece, which is, um, you know, people are inherently creative creatures, mm. right? And, you know, we claim that, you know, the thing that really distinguishes us. So we used to claim it's a binary distinction. You know, we're creative and the, the rest of the animal kingdom is not. And, you know, probably more accurate is we're really, really, really creative. And the rest of the animal kingdom is, you know, kind of like dabbling in creativity. But whatever it is, it it, it it is so the defining characteristic of being human. And you start thinking about it as as a leader of, you know, uh, fives and tens and fifteens or 150, whatever it is, as a leader, you have an opportunity to shape the environment in such a way that people can be less creative or more creative. And uh, why the hell would you pick less? (laughs) You know, why why the hell would you make it your daily experience to um, diminish the ability of people to uh, achieve their fullest potential? And and why not then, you know, given the choice, and it really is a choice, it really is a choice, as I try to explain in the book, really is a choice for leaders. They have those alternatives, right? So one alternative is to act in such a way that you diminish people's ability to express their full potential as creative human, human beings. And the other alternative is you can choose, and it's a choice, you can choose each day to help people more express, more express their potential as creative creatures. And not only creative, like, oh, look at the little thing I made and it's now sitting as a hobby on my desk, but creative in such a way that they're doing something which someone else appreciates. Mm -hmm. There's not only creative creatures, but creative creatures who can do things which are appreciated by others. So um, anyway, like I said, I I find this whole way of thinking to which I've been exposed, this whole way of really behaving so inspirational because given the finiteness of the time we have, this is really the the code the code to putting that time to much better productive appreciated use.
0: Yeah, well, it's a truly aspirational sense that we can always be better, and that it's not just about you know business results, whatever. But it can really be related to human flourishing also. So you can take it you know any way that uh, connects to you. Well, yeah. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a, my pleasure to talk to you. I wish I had more time to talk this with you, but You know, we have to be respectful of each other's time. So is there anything you'd like to leave listeners with before we go?
1: Oh, yeah. So thank you so much. So one is the offer, right? So um, I really enjoyed this conversation. And if there's opportunity to have another one, a follow-up, let's do it. If any of your listeners want to follow up, uh, you know, with a group conversation or one-on-one, please do. You know, I'll send you excerpts from my book, which, you know, you'll post on your website, whatever else. And look, if people like the excerpt, buy the damn book, you know.
0: <laughs> yes, buy the um, book. It's hey, a great book.
1: Yeah, you know, birthdays are coming up, holidays are coming up, gift giving, you know, you know, it's in the spirit. So buy the book. The other thing is if uh, folks want to check it out, um, you know, we're talking about structure and dynamics of problem-solving organizations. So um, one of the things we've done is uh, recognize that depending on your workforce, if it's um, – Distributed and dependent on central resources, sometimes getting that connectivity to have the right dynamics is difficult. So we created some software for that, and we created some other software for when people. Anyway, you can go to the website and check it out. But if people want to see what we're up to to try and create tools to enable this uh, learning dynamic, it's C2Solve. You know, SEE like you know, site C2 you know enables. So SEE dot com. Yeah. Got a little demo videos and cartoons and stuff. And so, yeah, it'll be fun to watch
0: anyway. Well, and for listeners, you can always find the links to all these things on smallbatches.fm. The links to see to solve the high velocity edge, where to buy the book, presentations from Steve, and supplementary information will all be linked there. So, Steve, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I would love to talk to you again. But for now, I think we'll leave it there.
1: All right. Well, thank you. And over now for now, then.
0: You've just finished another episode of Small Batches, a podcast on building a high-performance software delivery organization. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, go to smallbatches.fm. I hope to have you back again for the next episode. So until then, happy shipping. Like the sound of Small Batches? This episode was produced by Podsworth Media. That's podsworth.com.